Hey, good morning, church family. The words of that song that we just sang contain some amazing truths. God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus Savior risen now to reign. And I can't wait until we're all together shouting out that anthem as one body again. It'll be great. Just hang in there, church. We're, we're going to be together one day soon. I hope you enjoyed Aaron's message for us last week as much as I did. We were able to dip our toes into the good news that Christ's atoning work for us is finished. That everything required for reconciliation between man and God is completed in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And as much as we miss the Adams, it's great to know that Heather and Aaron and the girls are doing well and they're able to proclaim the gospel in Greeley, Colorado, as they did when they were here. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that message, I'd encourage you to go ahead and take a look at last week's video and check that out when you've got some time. For today, we'll be heading back to the book of Exodus and continue in our journey out of Egypt. So if you don't already have it, open. I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, and today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Harry took us to Exodus chapter 5, and he unpacked the event of Moses and Aaron making their first appeal to Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh responded by cracking down on the people with an iron fist. He took away their supplies and forced them to work even harder. And worse, the penalty for not meeting Pharaoh's expectations was beatings, ridicule, even death. Needless to say, things were not looking good for the people of Israel. So Moses complained to God. Would you take a look at the end of chapter 5 with me, starting in verse 22? Moses says to the Lord, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. Moses says, Hey, God, we ordered this deliverance with two day prime delivery, and here we are being beaten and killed. What have you done? Well, despite his confusion, Moses at least got one thing right in his complaint. The people of Israel were God's people. What Moses didn't understand was the relationship between God and his people. How does it work? Why were things not going the way that Moses and the people of Israel expected them to go? Moses is simply asking, God, what is the deal here? Like some of you, I grew up in a Christian home. I attended Christian Heritage Academy and uh, elementary school and middle school. I went to youth group. I went to church regularly, uh, the whole shebang. And despite not actually becoming a believer until about halfway through high school, I picked up a fair amount of Christian lingo throughout the course of my childhood. You know that we have our own lingo, right? We as a 
Christian subculture have developed ways of saying things that are completely foreign to a, sec- to a secular world. I went to uh, Deerfield High School, and uh, I would say things sometimes, and people would look at me like I was from a different century. They would look at me like I had just stepped off of the Mayflower or something like that. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Especially when we would talk about something like dating. So, for example, somebody like myself that grew up in the 90s and the 2000s might be talking about someone and say something like, I think I'd like to court her. Or, I think I'd like to pursue him in courtship. Which is really just a roundabout way of saying, I think I'd like to date them. And then a friend might respond, are you sure? Because you should really guard her heart, bro. You should really make sure you're guarding her heart. Which again is a roundabout way of saying, well, don't lead them on. And then someone might try to say, maybe you got to DTR. Have you heard that phrase before, DTR? It's all right if you haven't. It's a shorthand acronym for define the relationship. DTR. A DTR is a type of conversation you have with someone when you want to get on the same page about the status of your relationship with them. Find out, are you dating? Are you interested in dating? Or maybe the most common, you're interested in dating someone, but them, not so much. Christians like to have a cutesy name for this conversation, a DTR. At any point in the course of this pandemic, have you found yourself asking why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why now? Why me? Why my family? Why my church? What are you doing in this situation, God? Are we not your people? Are you for us or against us? What's the deal, God? As we look to our passage today, we should look expecting that God has given us answers in his word. In Exodus chapter 5, we saw that Moses was unclear about how this whole Exodus thing was supposed to work. He's frustrated with the way things have gone so far, and most of all, he's confused. He's confused about the true nature of God's relationship with his people. Is God for them or against them? And he levied a serious accusation against God. He accused him of doing evil. And this perfect God, the very antithesis of evil, would have been just to smite Moses right where he stood. But instead, we see God have mercy. And he had a DTR moment with his people. In today's passage, we see God define his relationship with his people. So the question I'd like to be thinking thinking about as we get into the text today is, how does God define his relationship with his people? And as we move through the text, we'll see the answer in three ways. First, we'll see how God defines himself. Second, we'll see how God defines his role in the relationship. And third, we'll see how God's people respond. 
Consider first what God says about himself in his response to Moses. He defines himself in a few key ways. He defines himself as a powerful God, as a promise-keeping God, and a personal God, Yahweh. In Genesis chapter 17, God appeared before Abraham and he introduced himself as God Almighty. In Hebrew, the name is El Shaddai, God the most powerful, God the omnipotent. Now, he could have chosen to introduce himself to Abram in a great many ways, but he starts with this one. I am God Almighty. There is no one stronger, no one bigger, no one more mighty than I am. And then over the course of the next few chapters here in Exodus, we'll see various Egyptian priests and sorcerers try to appease their puny Uh, elemental and metaphysical gods into demonstrating their power. The Egyptian god Osiris, who is said to regulate the, the, the cycle of the Nile River. Ra, the god of the sun. Hathor, the god of reproduction and fertility. Anubis, the god of death. And Apis, the god of bull strength. On and on, Egyptian, pagan, and polytheistic societies would come up with these minor league little g gods that they would try to put on display and worship. Yet none of these gods could hold a candle to God in strength. None of them could even compare to the almighty God, El Shaddai, the God who gathered the waters and created the land, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light and a sun in the sky, the God who spoke life into existence and ordains life and death at the exact moments that they should occur. There is no God who is stronger or mightier than the God who created and mastered all things. I would encourage you to make it a practice to think upon and ponder the grandeur and the the largeness and the bigness and the mightiness of this God. Try this. One of these nights when you're with your family and there's a clear sky, go ahead and jump into the car and drive somewhere a little bit more remote. Try to get away from the city lights and look out to the stars in the sky and consider the enormity of planet Earth. And then consider the galaxy in which planet Earth orbits. And then consider the universe which contains innumerable galaxies. And as you look up at those stars, consider all of this created by our almighty God. That's the first way that God defines himself, all-powerful. Second, God reminded Moses that he is the God of the promise that he is the very God who walked with the fathers of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not a new God. He's not unfamiliar with the history of Israel or the trajectory of the people of Israel. He is the God who of his own volition established a covenant that carries from generation to generation, a covenant 
that recognized that this people, the offspring of Abraham, would be enslaved in Egypt. And then he promised deliverance out of Egypt and to the promised land. God is a God who keeps promises. He makes them, he remembers them, and he fulfills them. So he is the all-powerful God who keeps his promises. He's also a God who makes himself known personally to his people. That's the third way that God defines himself in this passage, by making himself known by his very own name, the Lord, Yahweh. In English translations of the Bible, the name Yahweh is almost always translated as the Lord. Here, God says, listen, your, your fathers knew me as the all-powerful God that established a covenant with them, but I did not make myself known to them by the very name that keeps that covenant. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And notice how many times throughout this passage, God invokes his own name. In verses 2 and 6, he says, I am the Lord. In verse 3, he says, my name, the Lord. In verse 7, he says, you shall know that I am the Lord. And finally, one more time to wrap up that whole dialogue, he says, I am the Lord. It's his personal name, Yahweh. It's a proper noun like Rohan or Crandall or Harry. This is God's introduction to us into eternity. In Exodus chapter 3, God said, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout generations. Yahweh. So here we see the personal introduction to the most holy God. So God defines himself as powerful, promise-keeping, and personal. When you think of God, does the way you define him allow you to think of him rightly? As being powerful, as keeping all of his promises, as being personal. When you pray, do you pray knowing that God is fully powerful to do all that he pleases? When you ask for help through challenging circumstances, do you consider that God is powerful over every challenge that you face? When you speak to him, do you know that he's not a distant, faraway, uncaring God, but he's a loving father who loves you and cares for you? When you think upon the election that we have from God the Father and the justification that we have in the work of Jesus and the sanctification that is being worked through us in the Holy Spirit, do you consider that God is a God who always keeps his promises and always sees them through to fulfillment? This is how God defines his relationship with us. So I'd encourage you to consider him and think of him as he's revealed himself to us in Scripture, as powerful, God the Almighty, as a promise-keeping God, the God of the covenant, and as personal, Yahweh.
So that's how God defines himself in this relationship. Second, let's consider how God defines his part or his role in the relationship. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6, God says, Just you wait and see, Moses. When I'm done with Pharaoh, not only will he let my people go, he'll want nothing to do with them. He'll force them out as fast as he can. All right, so apparently, according to God, Pharaoh is going to let go his own slave workforce. Now, how is that going to happen? Take a look at verse 6 with me. Let's find out. God said, Say therefore to the people of Israel. Now, let's pause there for a moment. Tried and true, every time when you're reading your Bible and you stumble upon that word, therefore, it's always worth, worth pausing, taking a step back, retrace your steps, and see what is that therefore, therefore. In this case, God has just finished defining himself in his relationship with his people, an all-powerful, promise-keeping, um, personal God who makes himself known by his personal name. And God says, therefore, here's what I'm going to do for my people. It's going to happen because of my name. And he proceeds to unpack this epic to-do list rooted in the guarantee of his own name. In verses 6 through 8, God unpacks a series of I will statements. In verse 6, he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver and redeem you from slavery. In verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. In verse 8, God says, I will bring you into the promised land, and I will give it to you, for you are my people. Now, we've already unpacked most of the details of these promises when we looked at Exodus chapter 3 a few weeks ago. But as we zoom out, just take a bird's eye view at what God is saying here, there's an obvious takeaway at how this all works. God says, I will, I will, I will. God says, I will do everything required to save my people and fulfill my covenant. I will be the one who removes the burdens from your shoulders. I will be the one who redeems you out of slavery. I will be the one who takes you to be my people. I will be your God. I'll be the one who delivers you to the land that I have promised you, for you are my people and I am your God. God says, Moses, I'm going to do everything, every little thing. That is my role in this relationship. Even as Moses said, God, where are you in all of this? You've done nothing but evil to your people. God says, Moses, everything that is required to save my people and fulfill my covenant is as good as done. God's to-do list that we see here isn't just a to-do list, it's a to-done list. God is going to see through every single thing that he says. 
This is one of the many benefits of reading the whole counsel of God. Throughout the account of Exodus, out of Egypt, we get to witness God who by his power, by his promise, by his personal name is unstoppably committed to doing good for his people. And we see this very same truth worked out in the work of Jesus Christ for us in the law-fulfilling life and justice-satisfying death and glorious, victorious resurrection of Jesus, God removes the burden of the law from our shoulders. He redeems us out of slavery to sin. He adopts us to be his people so that we might know him as Yahweh, our God. All right, so we've seen how God defines himself and we saw how he defines his role in this relationship. Lastly, how do God's people respond? Take a look at verse 6 with me. Sorry, verse 9. Take a look at verse 9 with me. Spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses told the people of Israel all that God told him to say. They were told of God's power, of God's promise, and of his personal introduction. They were told of all the ways that God said he was going to rescue them out of Egypt. And yet, they didn't listen. Now, it's not that they didn't hear the words Moses was saying. It's that they didn't listen to him. The truths of God that Moses delivered to them were not received by believing hearts. Why? Well, we're given one answer to this question here in the text. It says the people didn't listen because their spirits were broken due to harsh slavery. That word here used for broken spirit could be stated as anguish. One theologian went as far as to describe it as a shortness of breath, a grasping cry for air, a suffocation of spirit. Their fallen circumstances brought them to despair. Just imagine this scenario with me. This group of people has lived in Egypt for hundreds of years. That means there's been multiple generations of Jews enslaved in this foreign land. They've known nothing but slavery for the entirety of their lives. Their parents knew nothing but slavery. Their parents' parents knew nothing but slavery. Generation after generation, knowing nothing but shackles, beatings, subjugation. They cried out for deliverance, but deliverance didn't seem to come. Then one day Moses came along and said, this is it. An almighty promise-keeping God has said that he's heard your cries and he's going to deliver you out of Egypt. And for a moment, they were hopeful. For a moment, a light shined into darkness. For a moment, they felt free. For a moment, they bowed down and worshipped God. And then Pharaoh flexed his ever-shrinking muscles and that glimmer of hope, that 
light shining in the darkness seemed to be extinguished. After years of slavery, years of abuse, years of hopelessness, their challenges seemed to be bigger than God. And Moses' message of deliverance and freedom and redemption fell on deaf ears and defeated hearts. We live in this broken world, broken culture, broken society, in these broken and failing bodies. All over the world we see endless wars waged by warlords and superpowers alike. We see Christians being beaten, persecuted, executed for their faith in Jesus. We see rampant poverty, hunger, disease. We see women and children being abducted, groomed, thrown into sex trafficking. We see addictions to alcohol, pornography, methamphetamines at an all-time high. Depression, anxiety, mental illness, all up at a high, even in a high-tech world. Gang violence on the streets of Chicago. Divisions over race and class leading to the murder of black men in our own country. 50 million babies aborted every year. And now a virus that has ended the lives of hundreds of thousands and taking millions of jobs in its path. This is the world in which we live. In some cases, it's right to be sad. In some cases, it's right to be angry. The fallen condition of this world is enough to break our spirits, to cause anguish, to suffocate hope. At times, it seems like there's no end to the depravity around us. At times, it seems like the darkness is bigger than God. But into that depravity, into that darkness, the light of Jesus Christ shines. And the voice of an all-powerful, promise-keeping Yahweh says, I am for you. Behold, I am making all things new. And so, as a people, we respond in this relationship with God, not with despair at our fallen condition, and circumstances, not in defeat. We recognize that the world is not the way it ought to be. We recognize that there's so much destruction, so much evil, so much pain that it simply should not exist. But we respond with hope in Jesus because we know that He is at work shining as a light into darkness, and we hold on to the hope that he will do exactly as he says, and he will make all things new. We hold on to the hope of that promise. Even in our fallen circumstances, the response of God's people should be hope in Christ, not despair in our circumstances. There's one more reason that the people of God did not listen to the good news 
that Moses delivered to them. And to find this out, we actually need to go out of the book of Exodus and to the book of Ezekiel, and we'll go to chapter 20 of Ezekiel. So if you would turn there with me, we'll wrap up our time together in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. Please join me there. And while you're turning there, just a bit of background as to why we're doing this, why we're going to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet to the people of Israel about 800 years after the exodus out of Egypt. And in this passage, he prophesies or he speaks on behalf of God to the elders of Israel that had come to him to hear from the Lord. And he provides a panoramic account of what we see happen in today's passage in Exodus chapter 6. And by panoramic, I mean he provides details from a different perspective than the author of Exodus gave us. Another great thing about reading the whole counsel of God is it's all ultimately written by the Holy Spirit. So we can trust the validity of both of these accounts and walk away with a clearer picture of what happened. So in Ezekiel chapter 20, here's this account of the Holy Spirit giving us another uh, insight into how the people of Israel responded to God's news for them when they were in Egypt. Take a look with me, starting in verse 5 of Ezekiel 20. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. So, pause there. Everything that God has said through Ezekiel so far in this text, we already know from Exodus chapter 6. So that's our context. Let's keep reading in verse 7. And I said to them, them being the people of Israel, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you, do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Let's stop there. We've already gained some new insight into one of the root causes of the people's disbelief. Their eyes were still fixed on the idols of Egypt. Those elemental and metaphysical little g-gods that we spoke of earlier. The Egyptian god Osiris, Ra, Hathor, Anubis, Apis. Even as God said, I am the all-powerful God, I am the God who keeps his promises. I am Yahweh, the God who truly makes himself known to you. I will redeem you. I will make you my people and I will be your God. Even as he said all of that, still the eyes and the hearts and the minds of the people were fixed on idols. Rather than placing their hope and trust in God, they placed their hope and trust in the idols of men. How wicked, how 
easily deceived are the hearts of mankind. How easily deceived are our hearts. This is a warning for us, church. Now you may say, Rohan, I don't, I don't worship any other deities. There's no statues in my house that I bow down to. I don't worship any idols. But the reality of our lives on this fallen world is that we are constantly looking for idols to hope in, to trust in, to worship. The reformer John Calvin once said that our hearts are perpetual idol-making factories, meaning that our hearts are always looking for the next thing to make the object of our trust, the object of our hope, the object of our worship. All these things other than the God who is truly deserving of our hope and trust and worship. Friends, hoping in idols will always take away from our heart's hope in Jesus. Trusting in idols will always take away from our heart's trust in Jesus. Worshiping idols will always take away from our heart's worship of Jesus. And when the good news of a powerful, promise-keeping, personal God being for us comes along as it did for the people of Israel, our idolatrous hearts are prone to say, nah, I'm good. I've got my idols. When the awesome, truly awesome love of Jesus is proclaimed through the work of the gospel, a heart that is trusting an idol says, so what? I've heard it thousands of times already. What can you do for me now? Jonah, Jonah chapter 2 says it this way. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Brothers and sisters, I would ask you to examine your heart. This pandemic is a tragedy. It's an awful byproduct of a fallen world. But God can use tragedy for his glory and for our good. And one of the ways I believe he is doing that right now in his church through this pandemic is he is revealing and exposing our idols. So I'd ask you, grab a pen, pencil, some paper, and ask the Lord to help you see the idols in your heart. Identify the idols. Write them down. Maybe it's the health and safety of you and your family. Maybe your trust is in your job, your financial stability, your retirement account. Maybe your idol is your civil liberties, your freedom and your ability to gather. Maybe your hope is in your, uh, your ability to have companionship with friends and to be with them. Or perhaps your idol is simply normalcy, living life the way you're used to living. Brothers and sisters, these are all good things. 
but trusting and hoping in any one of them is idolatrous. And it takes away from our ability to understand and receive the love of Jesus in the good news of the gospel. And how are we to love and serve our neighbor in these trying times if our hearts are clouded with idolatry rather than receiving the love of Jesus the way it is distributed to us freely? And so ask the Lord, reveal the idols of my heart and repent to him knowing that he gives grace freely in Jesus for us. Ask him, restore the joy of my salvation. Salvation by you, a God who is all-powerful. Salvation by a God who is promise-keeping in the work of the gospel. Salvation by a God who knows you and loves you personally as Yahweh. Maybe you are listening to this sermon and you're in another camp. And like the people of Israel, you've heard but never truly listened to the good news of the gospel. Maybe all you've ever known, all you've ever clung to is the idols of this world. You can trust me. I know exactly how you feel. I have been there myself. But please hear me when I say, God is infinitely more powerful than the idols of this world. The promise that he has for you in Jesus Christ is more worthy of your hope than any promise you've ever been told. And if you put your faith in Jesus and believe the good news that he came for you, then you too can be set free. You too can be adopted as a child of God. I pray that you would come to know Jesus today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, holy and perfect Father, Yahweh, we come before you as your children in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And we confess that our hearts are quick to distrust all that you have done for us in Jesus. We are quick to look to idols for safety, for comfort, for trust, for hope. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are strong when we are weak. That you are faithful when we are faithless. And what you have done for us in Jesus Christ is more worthy of our hope, more worthy of our trust, more worthy of our worship than anything this world has to offer. O great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Own them and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Reign in our hearts now, O God. And come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.